Well, welcome uh, back to Romans as we begin the last chapter um, of our series, the final part of the first half of Paul's uh, remarkable in-depth walkthrough of the Gospel of King Jesus. And as we come to, to the climax of this part of the letter, to this faithful Roman church, it's good for us to remember where we've come from and to see, uh, uh, remind ourselves of the argument that we've been following from uh, chapter 6 specifically, as we've been looking at what this Gospel does to us as uh, believers, and that will really help us as we come into chapter 8 over these next uh, three weeks. And we started this big argument about the gospel, starting in chapter 6, if you remember, by asking the question, how is it if we are truly under free grace and given total free forgiveness and no longer under the law, that Christians aren't just free to sin with total abandon? And in answer to that, uh, Paul has said many things. He said, well, Christians can't live like that because the free gift of grace, if it's to be received fully, allows us to live a life that we couldn't live before. The, the free gift of God's grace is living in good and godly ways for and in Jesus who saved us freely by his grace and has promised us an eternal home. Furthermore, we read that the free gift of God's grace moves us from death in sinful, fleshy Adam and moves us into a state of resurrected aliveness in Christ. That means we are now dead to sin and alive to Jesus and his way of living. So, so why wouldn't we want to live that way? And if that wasn't enough, Paul then reminded us that not only are we moved from death to life, but by grace we are removed from slavery to sin into slavery to righteousness. We are bound to Jesus and his spirit, which works in the believer in godly living and sanctification, something we couldn't do before we were saved. Be who you are, says Paul. Be the person Jesus has saved you by grace to be, a sinner given Christ's righteousness and able to say no to sin and move on to sanctification and godly living. And that's where <clears throat> last week came in as uh, Paul moved us one step further, where in answer to why we still struggle with sin after all of this, and what the point of the law is if we still sin, well, we are reminded that the law, as much as it provokes sin in a human, it doesn't mean it's bad. On the contrary, it means it's good. It allows me to see my sin clearly. It allows me to see God's goodness clearly. It allows me to rightly understand my battle with sin. Under grace, I'm no longer drawn to despair when I realise I keep on sinning. It reminds me that I still have a fallen, fleshy self that sort of hangs on. It's not, it's not quite over yet. But that in Christ, I have a new desire to keep the law and hate sin, and that, and that drives me in my battle as I live for Jesus. That's where we've come from, and that's the journey of Paul's argument so far. And we could sit back at the end of chapter 7 and go, okay, I'm convinced, great, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a battling sinner who wrestles like every other believer in sin, but my grace and my desires are changed and I want to love God more, that's great, thank you, Paul, I can go my way battling with sin, uh, able to live a life I couldn't before, I'm going to close the book of Romans and then we're going to go on our way. But as wonderful as all that is, Paul is not finished. For in chapter 8, we find out that Paul wants to take us one step further in thinking about us living under grace, and he wants us to give us one more convincing element of assurance that is going to help us in our Christian living. And he does so by way of throwing us a total curveball, which we find in chapter four of uh, verse four of chapter eight. And this verse is going to become a bit of an anchor verse for us today as we go through um, our verses. Uh, just read that with me. Paul says in verse four, everything over the past seven chapters personified in Christ was done, verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
In other words, Paul is saying that actually what has been going on over the past seven chapters is getting us to the point where we see that all the time, in fact, God has been creating a human, me, you, us as believers, in whom God's perfect spiritual righteous law that we've just been looking at in chapter seven is totally fulfilled and is fully and perfectly kept. And we sort of balk at that a bit. But, but you said last week, <laughs> Paul, I couldn't keep it properly. You said, yes, we desire the law. It helps us. It's good. We've got all that. But it can't be fulfilled in us. And then it can't be kept perfectly by us because we're not perfect. Sin is always at hand. That's what you were reminding us of last week. Even more so is this shocking when we read verse 7 of chapter 8. Just read that with me. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, we know that. <laughs> I cannot keep the law. So what's going on here? How is it both impossible to please God perfectly on one hand and yet possible for God's law to be perfectly fulfilled in me on the other? Well, what's going on here in chapter 8 is the final part of this gospel puzzle, if you like. It's the final answer to that very conundrum. It's basically the question we've been asking and wrestling with for the past six weeks. Seeing how God's law can be fulfilled in a Christian even as we battle with sin. And what we have to keep in our minds as we go through chapter 8, before we say anything else, is to understand that the focus of the law being fulfilled in us is all to do with normal, daily, godly Christian living. And we know that, not least because that's what Paul's been talking about all the way through Romans, getting rid of sin from your members. You want to be living more for God. But, but also remember what the law is, the law that actually Paul's been tracking all the way since chapter one, the law that we see in the Old Testament. The law is given by God. It was always, what was it always meant to be? It, it wasn't just a set of rules. Rather, it was a beautiful pattern of living for God's people. That's what the Ten Commandments, the, the big summary of the Levitical law was about. God's people meant to look at the Ten Commandments and go, wow, I would give anything to live in that kind of community. Where those things don't happen, where, where God is honoured and marriages are protected and only truth is celebrated, where no one is envious, where, where our neighbours are loved and where peace between each other reigns, you see? In other words, when all is said and done, the question off the back of Romans 1 to 7 is how can a Christian live in a way where we fulfill God's law as it was intended to be lived and fulfilled in his people in us? Where we love each other, as we were talking to the kids about. Where we love God and do what is right and please him, for that is what the law is all about. The beautiful pattern of living that we were meant to live and by God's grace we can now live, says Paul, for the good of ourselves and for the good of each other and for the good of our relationship with the Lord Jesus. And, and, and putting it that way, <clears throat> it sounds much less like God is a sort of frosty headmaster here, is a stickler for detail and he wants us to observe his draconian rules and the law is only fulfilled if we're perfect. Not at all. Chapter 8 is all about how we enjoy the law as Christians. How can we enjoy loving each other as Christians? How can we enjoy loving God increasingly? That's what the law wants us to do. How, how can Christians enjoy pleasing God without fear of getting it wrong? Those are the things that the law was meant to achieve for humanity. So how do we do it? 
How can I keep God's law that I battle with sin for my benefit, for his glory? And, and that's what chapter 8 is going to answer for us over these weeks. How do we enjoy living this Christian, saved by grace, life in Christ as we grow with each other in the world? And this is where we come to today's passage. The big answer about the law summarized in verse 4. For, for this is where the paradox of the law meets. How can this law then, which as sinners only condemns us, and which as people saved by grace only at best nudges us away from sin but never fully succeeds, how can it be any way fulfilled in me? How can we be living the right Christian gospel amongst ourselves such that God can look on his law in me and say, yes, it is fulfilled? It is being experienced and enjoyed and lived out exactly as I wanted it to be. Well, Paul says it is possible, and it's not only possible, but it is everything that God is doing in the believer. My law can and will be fulfilled in my people. The question is how? And this brings us on to uh, our two points this morning, because there are two ways in which the law is perfectly fulfilling us, and the first is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. First point, God's law is fulfilled in us, as Christ fulfills the law's requirements bodily on the cross in our place, meaning that we are not condemned. It's actually very simple, isn't it? The answer to this conundrum is Jesus. He who perfectly, so who perfectly uh, fulfills the law on earth as a human, it can only be Jesus. And if we are in Jesus, remember my pen and Bible analogy a few weeks ago. If the pen is in the Bible, what happens to the Bible happens to the pen. It goes everywhere that the Bible goes. But it's the same with me and Jesus. What happens to Jesus happens to us. And so if Jesus perfectly keeps the law, then we perfectly keep the law in him. And that's true. And that's everything that Paul has been saying about our union with Christ as believers. However, that is not quite the full extent of this passage. For what does verse 4 actually say? Look at it. It says that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, what does that mean? Well, the righteous requirement of the law is not just the demand to keep it perfectly. That's certainly one of them. But it is also the requirement the law demands when it has been broken. And what does the law require when it has been broken? It's death. That's what we've been looking at in Romans. Everyone who breaks the law dies. That's what we see in chapter 1, right at the beginning. That's what we've been seeing in chapter 6. The wages of sin, of law-breaking, is death to everyone. So the righteous requirement of the law demands from me death. But in verse 4, this demand has been fulfilled. How well by Christ in our place, he has not only kept the law perfectly, but more importantly, he paid the demand the law had on me that as I didn't keep it perfectly. He died in my place, in our place. This is the bread and butter gospel. He has fulfilled the demand of the law I couldn't fulfill. He, he swapped places with me. He climbed onto the cross where I should have been, died my death, fulfilled the demands of my law breaking in himself and lets me go free. That's the very thing we are celebrating this morning as we eat bread and drink wine together, the substitution taking place on our behalf. Christ's body broken for us, his blood shed for us, all so that the demand of the law on my life was met on, on my behalf. And as much as we theologically know that to be true, do we live as if that is true? Because the repercussions of that substitutionary death is astonishing, for it is this knowledge that Paul has been building up in the past seven chapters of what Jesus does that brings us to the beginning of chapter 8, the most glorious verses in Romans. There is therefore, on the basis of everything Paul has argued in this letter so far, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There was once condemnation. There was once 
wrath and anger from God to face because we broke the law, but now something's changed. That There is no condemnation now. Why? How is that possible? Is it because God's a, do- a dodgy judge and he's done some legal gymnastics and he's decided that he, he wants to no longer abide by his own terms, so I'm going to change the law, I've changed the statutes, there's this thing called death, says God, it doesn't really work. I'm not a death kind of person anymore, so I'm going to lower the standards. Uh, and even though I've threatened death, I've changed my mind. I'm now a forgiving God. I'm a different kind of God. No, because of verses 2 and 3. Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Compare verse 3 with verse 1. There is now no condemnation in us. Verse 3, he condemns sin in his son. God condemned Jesus, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, a sacrifice for sin. So I, I am not condemned because I'm in him. He died, I won't die. He faced God's anger, I won't face God's anger. And, and Paul says that's an incredible thing. And he's summarizing the argument of the whole letter because here he says this is something that the law could not do. We've been looking at every single verse. The law couldn't do this, the law couldn't save you. People tried to, they, they, they always kept failing. If I get caught speeding, <clears throat> reminding me of, by putting up more signs after I'm being caught isn't going to help. It's not going to help with my past law-breaking. Or making it a bit more serious, you committed murder. In prison lectures, lectures on the sanctity of life isn't going to help my past. It's not going to change your sentence, no matter how desperately sad I feel. More detail about God's standards don't solve the problem of our law-breaking before a holy God. More than that, chapter 7 reminds us that that actually the more we know about the law, the more it tempts us to break it. The law is weak. That's what Paul means here. He was powerless, says Paul. He could tell you the standard, but it couldn't solve the problem. And so God sent his son as an offering of sin, and he condemned sin in the body of Jesus. And therefore there is no condemnation for those of us who are in him. This is enormously helpful for us as Christians. I think we know that, but we don't believe it. This is hugely helpful as we seek to live out God's law every time we are conscious of failing God's standards, every time we are conscious that we haven't loved God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength that day. You may feel the the guilty pang of conscience that you've royally messed up. I did not honor God today. I hated that person today. But these verses seep into our souls and you remember the truth that you in Christ, well, there is now no condemnation for you. Every time we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves, every time we snap at our spouses after a long day, every time you're angry with your children because they're on a short fuse, every time you take out your friend because you're tired and you feel bad about it, your conscience is pricked, and you say to yourself, well, praise God that there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Not because God's changed the standards, or doesn't care anymore, but because Jesus came as a baby at Christmas in order, verse 4, to be condemned for those sins. In order to become an offering for the demand of the law of my sins so that I will not be condemned. The incarnation of God's Son is an astonishing reality that we can wash over at Christmas. This is why Jesus came. 
these verses should be ones that we learn and repeat, I think, on a daily basis. Not to excuse sin, we're going to come to that. But to prompt us as we're battling with sin that we who live under Christ are under his grace. All is not lost when I fail. For there is no condemnation for us in Christ. And, and goodness does that come at an astonishing cost. And so says Paul, verse 4, this all happened in Christ in order that the righteous penalty of the law be met in me. I will not die. I have freedom for eternity. But that's only half the answer, isn't it? All the time with Paul, it's only half the answer. What do I do about this high standard of God so they can't keep? How are the righteous requirements of God's perfect law kept in me? Well, Jesus does it all. I'm in him and I'm acquitted. Praise God. That's my answer to the cry of last week, the end of chapter 7. Who can save me from this body of death that fails every single day, even when my desires are matched up to it? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, who does this. He was condemned for me. That's what I'm thanking God in Christ for. But as ever with this passage of Romans, we're still left again with the point, well, aren't Christians going to be immoral? <laughs> there are moral people who, who aren't condemned, which is good for them, but awful for everyone else. What about the fulfilling of the law in the sense that God want us, what would want it to be fulfilled, that we were just looking at right at the beginning of the talk, in the way that the law was always meant to be fulfilled, by way of moral transformation in God's people that affects the world around them? What about the desire for God to be honoured as the law promotes, for neighbours to be loved, the poor and widowed to be protected, that attractive kind of living that allows us to live, believer amongst believer, believer in the world, believer under God? What about that kind side of the law being fulfilled? Well, that brings us to the rest of these verses and the other bit of verse 4. Notice how verse 4 ends. Jesus was condemned in our place in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, but it might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law is fulfilled by Jesus instead of us in our place, but at the same time, the law is fulfilled in us as we live, present continuous tense, in a new life of the Spirit. And as you read on in Romans from this point, in fact, for the whole of the rest of the book, we discover it is because of the spirit of this same Jesus living within us that this living and fulfilling and obeying the law becomes possible and, and more and more of our experience every day as we walk through the Christian life, where Christian living becomes alive and real. Indeed, we now find that loving God and loving one's neighbour, the two ways in which the law is summarised, is possible now because of the spirit. And this is the second part of Paul's argument. Point one, the law is fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who dies in our place. Secondly, the law is fulfilled in us through the indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, the rest of the verse is quite a long argument, but I'm just going to give an overview of it before we draw to a close. And this is where we get to what Paul's final assurance is for us who are saved and wrestle with life. That is the total and undeniable help and power of the Holy Spirit within us. And Paul basically starts with this part of the argument about the Spirit by saying, don't forget, guys, there are two ways of living. The fleshy way that we looked at last week in Romans 7, that's the earthly rebellious against God nature that is still hanging on to us and causing havoc in our natures. And that's life according to the flesh. And then there's life according to God's Holy Spirit, who um, dwells within Christians to live inside them and change them. And Paul begins by describing two different kinds of life and then tells you, as a Christian, which one you are and how that helps. Firstly, life according to the flesh. Reading from verses 5 to 7. 
Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, and it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What Paul is saying here is, in your old you, you weren't actually interested in God. It was your flesh, your soul, you were rebellious against God. It was hostile to him. In fact, even in your old self, says Paul, if you decided one day that you, you know what, I've changed my mind. I'm going to be a really morally responsible person. I'm going to keep all the Ten Commandments this week. It turns out you couldn't do that even if you wanted to. The mind that is set in the flesh won't submit to God's law, can't. It can't fulfill the law in the way that God would want it to be. That's the old you, the pre-Christian you, but something changed, verse 9. As you, the believer, becomes inhabited by the Spirit. This is life according to the Spirit. You, however, verse 9, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Basically, if you're a Christian, you've put your trust in Jesus, then you have God's Holy Spirit inside of you. That's all that Paul said. Conversely, if you don't have God's Holy Spirit, then you're not a Christian. On this, and this is important to mention here with this kind of passage, there's teaching that is very popular in the church that says that receiving the Holy Spirit is an extra sort of stage that you can add on to your Christian life. Maybe you're a Christian, you trust in Jesus, but you're not a spirit-filled Christian. And the idea that there's sort of two levels of Christianity, some people describe it as either being a pilot-like Christian, so you're like a, you've got a pilot light in you, you're sort of like a boiler with a little flame that's sort of on all the time but not really doing anything of note. Or you're a Christian on full flame, a proper Christian with the Spirit of Christ burning in better fullness in you than other Christians. Well... Paul never recognises that distinction. Here, there are only two categories. You're either not a Christian, in case you don't, have the, you don't have the Spirit of God, or you are a Christian and you have the full Spirit of God dwelling in you all the time. So if you have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you, then you're alive and your body is raised. Verse 13, you can put deeds of the body uh, to, to death and you will live. There are two ways to live, by the flesh which leads to death or the spirit which leads to life. And the Christian lives the spirit-filled life. But what does that mean? What difference does the spirit make to our Christian living in fulfillment of God's law as we live amongst it uh, to those around us? Well, I think there are three main things that Paul draws out here that practically make a huge difference to our Christian living. First of all, as spirit-filled Christians, and by spirit-filled Christians I mean every single Christian who is spirit, that is spirit-filled, your mind, first of all, is transformed. And we see this pattern again and again. It always starts with the mind, how you think, how you live. How you think drives how you live. Your mind, your heart are the first to change under God's grace. And as the Christian mind is changed by the Spirit, so then the Christian body follows. And we saw this in chapter 1, didn't we, in reverse. Paul said, actually, the whole problem of rebellious behavior against God starts in your mind. We suppress the truth about God. 
We don't acknowledge him as God. We believe in a lie. And Paul says as a consequence of that, God gives you over to the dishonoring of your bodies, your, your, your flesh, your actions follow. So something goes wrong in our thinking that leads to something going wrong in our living. That was the negative. That's what we like when you weren't in Christ. But Paul says for the spirit-filled Christian, that is every Christian, that's been reversed. And our minds are ahead of the game where our bodies are concerned. Your mind drives your body to good things. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. The mind is transformed. It's alive and alert and awake and enlightened. It's alive and alert and awake and enlightened to God's law and the wonderful pattern of his living. And when it is, when that happens, that means verse 6 happens. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Can you see your, your mortal body begins to catch up in real life? I begin to physically live the way my new mind and heart desires. My body begins to follow more right decisions over the course of a lifetime of sanctification. Your mind being transformed by the spirit means the rest of your body is brought to life. That's the second thing. Your mind is transformed, causing your physical body to be transformed. And this is where Paul turns to next, verse 11. Read that with me. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the, the wonderful truth of the resurrection here in verse 11. We see this. Uh, preached at funerals. But, but here, uh, it's also an angle which we don't always think of. We, we think of the resurrection as a comfort in death, and it is. Jesus here in verse 11 is physically raised and will physically raise the dead in him to eternal life. That's those of us who believe in Jesus, to everlasting life. That's our assurance in death, and in the face of death, it is everything. But it is not the only help that Jesus' resurrection offers. Here, Jesus' resurrection is not only a solution to death, but it is a solution to sin. You see, the problem with this current body, it's not that it's just decaying, it's also that it's rebellious. As we saw last week in chapter 7, the, the body that I'm in battles with sin, it's in constant rebellion. Well, here, there, there's a wonderful nowness to the resurrection of Jesus. As the living spirit of the living Jesus fills my bones, as it were, it begins to take control of my person, my body. The more I grow in him, the more the spirit works in me, the, the more my mind is changed, the more I want to do what Jesus wants me to do, the more the law is fulfilled in me, the more people are loved. God, God is loved more. Growing in the spirit doesn't make me any more saved. Neither does it make me physically well in terms of my, my body. That has to wait until eternity. And it doesn't do away with chapter 7 and the lifelong wrestle with sin until I die. But with the Spirit now dwelling in me, it means I can make real gospel progress. My physical body is slowly becoming more alive to God's law, more alive to the obedience of his wonderful way of living, which has a manifest effect on the people around me in the world. A spirit for Christians, my mind is transformed, leading to my body being transformed. I begin to make better physical decisions. And, and that should be public knowledge. The gospel transformation is never limited to just private head knowledge. It becomes public physical transformation that people see. And that finally brings us to the last point of Paul's logic in the spirit. And that is, as the mind is transformed, which leads to a gradual transformation of the body, so that allows us to begin to put sin to death in our bodies now. 
Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors not according to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's a non-Christian way of living. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Because our minds have been transformed by the Spirit, because our bodies are being transformed by the Spirit, so that means I can actively put sin to death now. And remember what we've been looking at. There's an old me. The old me that's died with Jesus, but, he's, but it's still hanging around making life a battle. I battle with my mind. I want to love God, but my body says, let's not. That's what we looked at in chapter 7. And, and so Paul says, even though it's been crucified with Christ, it's still twitching, if you like. It's really grim, but this is the best example I have of this. We have a number of mice in our block of flats making our lives a misery. And all of us on our street are trying more inventive ways to try and kill them. And they're really, really hard. They're extraordinarily hard to get rid of, mice. And every now and again, we catch one. And more often than not, it's sort of partially caught in a trap. Have you ever had that? It's really grim. Yeah, I know. I know. This is... Gr- I, I'm sorry. I'm just going to go through it. It's really grim. It, it, it's twitching. It's not quite dead. It's definitely not going to live but it is not quite dead. And you sort of have to put it out of its misery. Me and Toby have a stone. We call it the mouse stone. And we just sort of try. You, you, you've, got to, you've got to do it. It's grim, isn't it? You've just got to do it. You've just got to do it. It's, it's really every morning we try and look for this. It's grim. And, and, and that's very much the idea that Paul is actually conjuring up over the course of Romans 1 7. You, you, you've got this twitchiness in you. And, and it's like your body is robust. It's really fighting against dying. And you've got to put that to death. No, not physically. I'm, 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 not, I'm not, please don't, I'm not going to use this passage as, a, as I did to promote self-flagellation and doing harm to your body. That's not what's going on here. That's not what the Bible teaches. On the contrary. But to your sin, yes. That's what you can do now as someone who has the Spirit. Your old you is dead, but you'll still find old rebellious Samor, and you've all seen it, and he rears his ugly head, and you need to kill him. <laughs> I need to kill him. You need to bring him out. You need to harm sin as it twitches in its death throes, as one commentator says, you're supposed to get violent in this spiritual battle. The spirit and the flesh are opposed to each other. You're on the spirit side, and every time you see sin raising itself, you need to assassinate it. You need to call it out, bring it to the surface, humiliate it, name it, kill it. Not because it makes you any more saved. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We've covered that, says Paul. But because this is now your life, Someone embodied with the spirit of the risen Christ, taken over your mind and your body, slowly being transformed more into his likeness, more into people who rightly and increasingly enjoy living out the law of God as he always wanted it to be fulfilled. In beautiful ways that make us enjoy loving each other and loving God. Are we a church that is displaying privately and publicly, individually and corporately, lives that reflect the spirit working and growing within us. This is where prayer helps, incidentally. Not incidentally, this is where prayer helps. Reading the Bible, I really mean this. Are we praying regularly, privately, together as a church family? If we're not praying, we're not seeking dependence on the spirit, we're not going to be perfect, but to be able to see a church family that adores the gospel that is unafraid of battle with sin and to call it out, that a church that is very honest with our shortcomings, a church that keeps short accounts with each other, is quick to repent, a church that is slowly and surely seeing spirit-powered gospel-living progress over years. Well, while that is the kind of church, as we go back to us looking at the Ten Commandments, that that's the kind of church that we would only ever want to be a part of. 
And it is that church, messy and imperfect and raw and real, yet making progress under grace between each other and between us and God, in which God looks down and says, seeing us in Christ and and empowered by the Spirit, yes. There is a body of people in whom my law has been and is being fulfilled. And as we close, that brings us to these beautiful verses at the end of our passage, as we look at communion together. For it's to this new body that we are now inhabiting that Paul finishes this section on. And what does he call these new, increasingly physical, transformed bodies that we're able to fulfill the law of God with each other? Verses 15 to 16, 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I'm worried I'm not a child of God. Yes, as the Spirit, you're a child of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God himself, fellow heirs with Christ. You see, as a Christian, having been substituted with the person of Christ, having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I am no longer Sam or as I was. I am a child of heaven. I am that different. I am a son of the Father. I have been given the right to be called a son of God, adopted out of the family line of Adam and into the family line of Jesus. I am Jesus' brother, his his co-inheritor of everything the Father has to give him, he gives to me, allow me to stand next to Jesus, my King, and being given the power to cry out by a son of first degree to the only person who can help me in life and death, Abba, my daddy. The father I'm allowed to clamber onto the knees of and and grab and hold close. What people under the law wouldn't have given to have had that kind of relationship with the lawmaker. And by God's spirit, we do. And much like a prince who is trained to one day take his mantle next to the king and behave and do his duty, so we are the same. Royal creatures, transformed humans, radically enlightened minds, deeply regenerate bodies, fully eternal beings allowed to live now as sons of the King. Saved by grace, saved in Christ's death, saved into the Spirit's life, and saved as a son and a daughter of God, where there is now no condemnation for those who are in him. Well, let me pray as we close. Father God, thank you and praise you so much for uh, these wonderful truths uh, this morning. Thank you so much for the beauty of the gospel. Thank you for the beauty of the law. Thank you that as we are saved by grace, as we are recognized that we are dead with Christ in his death, as we made alive in his resurrection, as we are given the spirit that keeps us alive and moving on, thank you that in that, as we look at the law, we see a beautiful plan for godly human living, a plan which protects us, which keeps us safe, and and which protects our relationship with you. Heavenly Father, may we be a people, may we be a church, may we be individuals who who are quick to call out sin, quick to put sin to death, and quick to remember that, 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 that in Christ we do not fail, In Christ, we are raised to a new life of of transformation where there is now no longer condemnation because of the Lord Jesus. 
Father God, I pray that all these things will be the things we are living out as a church family, that those are the things that make us attractive. Not, not, not lights and, and, and the, the, the things we do on a Sunday and our style and our conversation, but, but the way that we live for Jesus, the way that we love each other, and the way that we love God. Father God, thank you so much for these wonderful truths of the gospel. May you bind them to our hearts, we pray, especially as we prepare our hearts to eat at your table. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.